Hi, my name is Pauline, and I'm a volunteer here at the Recovery Radio Network. Did you know that last year people logged into Recovery Radio more than 600,000 times and listened to over 875,000 hours of recovery? Please help us continue this mission of service to the recovery community by donating to our cause. Fire up your computer. Go to recoveryradio.net and click the Donate button. It's that easy. This is Father Bill, and I'm a grateful alcoholic. Those of you who were here last night know the digs that Jack took at us good Catholics. I've been trying to think of something all day to get back at him, and honestly, I can't come up with a thing. All I can say is I'm grateful to that wonderful Pope John XXIII. About ten years ago, he opened up the windows with the result that it opened up my mind that I can accept even Methodists like Jack. privilege to be invited to this roundup, and at that time I remember I began with an apology. At that time I was engrossed in missionary work and giving missions and retreats, especially in Southern California, and I was afraid it might sound like I would get up here and be preaching. There's still that danger. But I want all of you to be assured that I'm not preaching. What I have to say tonight comes from the depths of my heart. Perhaps there should be another apology that might be more to the point. Since 1965, I have been a prison chaplain, full-time chaplain in a state penitentiary of 1,200 men. There is the outside possibility that I might slip into some yard talk. (laughs) And if I do, I want to apologize ahead of time. Parenthetically, I might mention right now how beautifully God works in our lives of us nuts who are alcoholics. You know, I had a bad heart attack in 65, and Oh, I thought my missionary work is finished. I can't be the great popular guy I was in giving these retreats and missions. The doctors told me no more of that, too much emotionalism. As a result, I got into prison work. And I tell you, it's the most frustrating, but at the same time, the most fulfilling work that I have had as a priest. I wouldn't trade places now with any priest in the United States in the work I'm doing now. Probably all of you know, or you should know, that 86% of the inmates in the state of California are in prison now for crimes that are directly related to booze. 86%. And I like to go out on a limb tonight and say that over 50% of these men are alcoholics. Over 50%. And it just gives me such a wonderful feeling that I have great rapport with these men. They average in age between 22 and 23, up some in their 60s. Some are doing life. Some will be there for a short time, but tremendous rapport that makes me feel so great. Not because I'm a Catholic priest, Jack, but because I am an alcoholic Catholic priest. (laughs) Needless to say, everything I have to say up here tonight is my personal opinion regarding our wonderful fellowship, what it means to me, what it has done for me, what it has done for the people with whom I work, And some of you might think I'm up in space with the astronauts. I might come off as a phony. And listen, you know, it's just possible I am 
exactly the kind of phony that I think I'm trying so hard not to be. Well, if you spot it, I'm going to be floating around here for the next couple of days. For God's sakes, come and see me. It's a 12-step call. Straighten me out. It's up to you. I know I have a long way to go. Proof of the pudding is the fact that after Maury called me several months ago and asked me if I would be a part of this roundup, and when he told me how many people he expected, after I hung up, I immediately thought, Wow! What can I come up with to impress them? How deeply can I dig into my scintillating genius and really give them a message? That's worthwhile. What was I looking for? That wonderful pat on the back and nothing else. Well, I have a long way to go. There's nothing really sensational about my drinking career. I would say the only thing sensational about it at all was that my damnable pride permitted me to come to you for help with this drinking problem. I was ordained a priest way back in 1942. No sense in trying to figure it out when it comes to 31 years. I was sent to a parish in Missouri, a very busy parish. I had full-time job of teaching in a small high school. I had coaching activities, basketball and baseball. Every night after the evening meal, there was always something going on that this society or that society. Of course, bingo was always in there. <laughs> always something. So it didn't take me very long to establish a pattern. I found out that if I had, if I took a couple of good hookers, oh. <laughs> If I took a couple of good shots, I could carry on through the evening. Not that I was physically tired, but I was more comfortable with people. I needed drink to make me feel comfortable with people. I think it's as simple as that as I think back to my early priesthood. And without some drink in me, I did not feel comfortable. I felt very ill at ease, always trying to make an impression. And if I had a couple of shots, I did make an impression, if I didn't have too much. I always had the answers. You know, they might not be the right answers, but at least I had answers to any questions that came up. I was witty. As a matter of fact, I was the best priest that ever hit that town of Sedalia, Missouri. I was thoroughly convinced of that. At the age of 27, I was elected president of the Lions Club. Some Masons paid my initiation fee into the Elks Club. Brother, that was living. For approximately 13 years, it was the same story. With the one exception, my drinking grew progressively worse. I was in five different parishes in those 13 years as assistant pastor. And in those years, by the way, we had no such thing as associate pastors. You were assistant with all that connotation involves. I drank on the job. I drank off the job. I drank, period. The best way I can explain my drinking on the job, and by that I mean when I had to be around the parish, was that it would be very rare that anyone got close to me that they couldn't smell fumes on my breath. During vacations, or whenever I had a few days off, perhaps to go fishing or to see a Notre Dame football game or go to a World Series, to be away from the parish overnight. My drinking always doubled or tripled. I always looked upon these events as occasions to drink, not as occasions to recreate, to have fun, to enjoy living, 
But they were occasions for me to drink, to drink to my heart's content, and not to have to be on the job, not to have to be there for certain appointments. Needless to say how many of these wonderful events I spoiled, trying to catch a foul ball, the Cubs playing the Reds in Cincinnati, the priest sitting next to me had sense enough to duck. I was the stupid guy who lost the sight of my left eye trying to catch that foul ball. Of course, during these years, it goes without saying, although I was stupid, I wasn't stupid enough not to realize that my drinking was abnormal. I wasn't drinking in the same way that other people were drinking, other priests were drinking. And because it was abnormal, it was causing me problems. It was causing me serious problems. I wanted to be a good priest. Not only the big shot, or that I wanted, but I also wanted to be a good priest, and I knew I wasn't being that good priest. So once in a while I would read something about drinking, something about alcoholism, but I always rationalized. The day came finally when I had a cop out to myself. Yes, I, I guess I'm an alcoholic, all right, but, oh heck, I'm not the bad kind. Whatever I meant by the bad kind, all I could think of was the skid row alcoholic. Later on, someone told me, Father, skid row isn't a place, it's a state of mind. And if that's true, I was on Skid Row. When I would read anything about a wet brain, all I could think of was that sponge in the middle of my head, and it would scare the hell out of me. Because of these frights, I did stop drinking at times, as many as three days at a time. <laughs> I was frightened. But then I said, now this time, it's going to be different. And I can remember one time, think of the insanity of this, a bottle of scotch on my dresser. Now I wasn't thinking this, I was saying this to the bottle of scotch. I was talking to it and saying, now listen, you're going to last me a week. Needless to say, I'd say that much to take care of the shakes, the next morning. I tried the only beer routine, and as small as my frame is, uh, the jowls actually covered the collar. I tried the geographical switch from Cincinnati, Ohio to Norfolk, Virginia. I lasted eight months in Norfolk, and I'm positive that the bishop of that particular diocese tactfully asked my superior, my provincial, to get me out of there. The longest period in these 13 years that I went for one month, and may I tell you about that, this will be interesting especially to those of you who are of my faith. It happened to be the month of November. The month of November in the Catholic Church we kind of set aside to pray for our deceased loved ones. A lady of the parish, a lady that I'm going to refer to later who had a lot to do with my getting into AA, bet me 25 bucks that I couldn't stop drinking for a month. I bet her I could. I said, you know what I'll do? I'm not interested in your $25. I know I can stop drinking because I'm going to offer it up for our deceased loved ones. And I did. I did not touch a drink for that month of November. But come December the 1st, I rang her doorbell to collect that 25 bucks. And you know where it went. <laughs> Some of you might be thinking, you know, a priest, well, what about the money deal? The inmates at my joint frequently wonder if I dipped into the Sunday collection. Because I belong to a society that has the vow of poverty. At that time, we got an allowance of about 35 bucks a month 
You can't buy a whole lot of liquor on 35 bucks, but I didn't have to steal. Not that I would not have. Had it been necessary, I would have. But I had a lot of friends. And oh, how I used those friends. All they had to do was shove the bottle out when I'd come for a visit, and they could be sure that Father Bill Stack would come to their house for many visits. And if they didn't, that was the last they saw of me. <laughs> the last time I was here, I recall asking myself a question, whether or not I ever caused any serious scandal as a priest. You know that was phony even to ask the question. I know I caused serious scandal. I must have many times. The blackouts I suffered, not knowing where I parked the car, not knowing if I drove the car home, not knowing if I was home when I woke up. I must have caused much serious scandal. I recall taking a night trip from Kansas City to St. Louis, getting off the train in the morning, the porter brushing off my clothes, and he said, Father, aren't you ashamed of yourself? I couldn't wait to get off of that train. I don't know what I did, but for him to say that expecting a tip, I must have done something pretty rotten that night. I don't know. But you know, this part of serious scandal, I, I can't understand. I lived with two different pastors, two different bosses, for three years with each one. And neither one of them knew that I had a drinking problem. Now, the only way I can explain this is that they couldn't smell or that I was always there for my appointed tasks. This is one thing I did do. If I had an appointment at 2 o'clock, I was there. If I had mass at 6 o'clock in the morning, I was there. I might be in terrible shape, but I was there. Toward the end, if I wasn't there, I would think up the biggest lie to tell to cover it. I didn't call it a lie then, it was an excuse, but... Factually, I defined an excuse for me as an alcoholic, nothing as a big fat lie wrapped up so cleverly that it looks like a reason. Many times I'd have an appointment, instructions or something at 2 o'clock in the afternoon. I'd wait until 1.15 because I felt hungover, I felt lousy, or I was just getting a new buzz on. And I call up the person that was supposed to come to the rectory for the appointment. And I'd say, I just got a call from the hospital. Someone's dying. I have to run out to see him. All I had to do was run out to some bar to get another drink. Oh, and I'll never forget. I was stationed in Flint, Michigan at this time. And one morning I came over from the 6 o'clock mass. And I happened to walk into the boss's office and I saw a note on his desk. It was hidden under a little book. All I could see was the word provincial. The word provincial is the word we call in our society our boss, our superior. So naturally, I looked at that piece of paper, and it said, Call Father's Provincial out three nights straight after midnight. Wow. What was I going to do? I walked upstairs. I paced up and down in my room. I was out three nights straight, there's no question, out boozing. What was I going to tell him? How could I clean this up? I couldn't dare let him call my provincial. Finally, it hit me. He had the 8 o'clock mass, and I knew exactly when he'd come back. At 20 minutes of 9, the back door slammed shut. I hurried down the steps. I said, Father, can I see you a moment before you eat breakfast? And oh, he was mad, I could tell it. What do you want? I said, it's something very, very serious. We walked into his office, and I acted as if I didn't see that paper on the desk. I said, Father, I admire your wisdom. I know you're a very brilliant man. I know you've dealt with many, many difficulties that I have never had to face. I've got to ask your advice on something. 
What is it? Well, there's a priest in this diocese that's got some awful problems. And I've been up with him the last three nights <laughs> trying to straighten him out. That big fat lie ended up with his putting his arm around me, feeling sorry for me. The beginning of the end came in the spring of 1955. One of the ladies of the parish had read a series of articles in a newspaper by a Catholic priest relative to alcoholism. She called me, and all she said on the phone was that, Father, one of these days you're going to be getting a letter from somebody back east. That was it. I was afraid to ask her what it was. I thought to myself, did she write to my provincial? I used to spend a lot of time over at their home crying in my beer, what a lousy priest I am, how I ought to go and join the Trappists, how I ought to change my life completely. What did she do? Well, it wasn't many days later, a letter arrived. And thanks be to God for the way that letter was worded something like this dear father stack one of your parishioners wrote me thinking you might have a drinking problem now the next sentence is what did it said we know how parishioners are prone to exaggerate the problems of their priests so if you don't have a problem forget that i even wrote to you but if you do have or if you're having difficulties because of drinking why don't you come and see me sometime? I think I can help you. Oh, was I mad. I threw that letter down, picked up the phone, and called that woman, and I gave her a piece of my mind. But I saved the letter. That letter was from a priest who was not an alcoholic. You know, we often hear it said that only Elkies can understand Elkies. That's a lie. This priest and one other person that I learned to love and know so well, that Jack referred to before, dear little Sister Ignatia, that priest and Sister Ignatia, they know alcoholics. This is my first opportunity in public to thank that priest because he happens to be here tonight. Father Fred. Thank you from the bottom of my heart, Fred. I put that letter on my desk. A couple of months later, when I was going to Cleveland on vacation, I put it in my bag. My dear mother gave me a couple hundred bucks so her dear son could have a nice vacation. Well, her dear son spent that 200 bucks in one week on booze. I drove to Cincinnati, caroused for a week, drove back to Cleveland on a Friday, July the 8th, 1955, with about 60 cents in my pocket. I needed gas, by the way. I borrowed my brother's car. I needed gas. I didn't know if I was going to make it or not. But I needed a drink, too. Do so you know where the money went? It went for the drink. The heck with the gas. I made it. I borrowed money from my brother. The next morning, I flew to Wilkes-Barre, Pennsylvania, where Father Fred was located at the time. Luckily, he was home. He's not home much these days. He's in Hawaii. He manages to get out to the West Coast and have his serenity retreats, but he always manages to get them at the right time for the Rose Bowl game. <laughs> we sat down in his room, and after some trivial conversation, Father Fred said, Well, Bill, what are you willing to do to stop drinking? And I said, I'm willing to do anything. He said, would you go to an AA meeting with me tonight? 
I almost said anything but that. But I was so sick, especially mentally and spiritually, I said yes. And thanks be to God. I don't know what happened at that first meeting. It was a rather large meeting of nothing like this, of course, but 150 people. I don't know really, honestly, what was said. I think Father Fred gave a pitch on patience. I didn't know what patience had to do with drinking. And, but, I, I, but something happened. Something so beautiful happened to me that night. I certainly went there with the willingness, with the desire to do something about my drinking problem that I had. And when I saw those people, I know there was faith there. And this faith, together with this willingness, gave birth to hope. And that was it. I went to four meetings in three days, one on that Saturday night, two on Sunday, and one on Monday. And I'm not sure of this, but I think I had my spiritual awakening that Monday night when the most horrific experience that I can relate in my life happened. It might sound small, but to me it was the biggest thing that happened. At the end of that Monday night meeting, some very heavy-set lady put her arm around me. She said, Father Bill, I've attended three of these four meetings you went to. I'm not of your faith. In fact, I'm Eastern Star. <laughs> this was before Pope John. <laughs> but this is what she said. She said, Father, forget everything you heard at these meetings. I thought she was local. I couldn't have remembered anything anyway, but... I thought something's wrong here. Forget everything. She said, just remember one thing. Don't take that first drink. But then she added this. She said, Father, if you think that there's any danger of you taking that drink when you get off the plane in Cleveland, my husband and I will fly back with you at our own expense. Love. Oh, my mom and dad loves me. My brothers love me. A lot of people love me. But that dear lady, I have to call her Mrs. X. I don't know her name. That dear lady taught me what real love is. For about two months and three weeks, I was in cloud nine. Oh, I was happy. Played 18 holes of golf right after I got back from Father Fred's with my two brothers, and they had a beer after the 18 holes, and I had a seven-up, and I started preaching to them about the dangers of booze. Oh, but I was happy. The real cloud nine. I had found the answer to my priesthood to, to getting rid of this booze. I didn't have to drink. But then something happened. The old pattern asserted itself. I was stationed in Cleveland at the time, and the pastor asked me if I would drive the housekeeper to a small town of Coldwater, Ohio. What a name for a town, Coldwater, for an alcoholic. But he made the mistake of telling me Bill, you don't have to come back until tomorrow night. I don't know, but the wheels must have begun turning immediately because I drove as fast as I could and took the housekeeper to her sister's and then headed for the next town as rapidly as I could. I didn't want anyone to talk me out of drinking. I didn't want to meet anybody. I drove to the first bar I could find. This was September the 27th of 1955. I drank two doubles, and then I drank the rest of that day. I tried to taper off the following day. And then came the big question. Friday morning, September the 29th, what am I going to do? 
Am I going to get back into this rotten mess again? I had said this prayer many times before. This time I meant it. I said, dear God, I need a drink for medicine. I can't go over to school and teach without it. But please don't let me take any more. I downed a half a tumbler of scotch, and thanks be to God, and thanks be to all of you, September the 29th, 1955, was my last drink. To the uninformed, to those who are not alcoholics, and I will exclude from this Al-Anon and Alateens, because they know. But to the really uninformed, it comes somewhat of a surprise, at least it used to. What, a priest, an alcoholic? You know, so many meetings I used to attend, uh, I'm sure that the people thought I was there to learn more about alcoholism, uh, so I could help out some other poor creatures that were drunks, you know, until they found out that I'm a drunk. And then so often they'd come up to me and ask me, what, how could this happen to you, Father? You're a priest. And I used to resent it just a little bit, not too much. But oh, let one of my fellow priests unload that at me. Oh, brother, you know, why don't you use your willpower more? Or why don't you pray more? Oh, I resented that terribly. But no longer. What's the use? The truth is simple. I am a Catholic priest. And I am an alcoholic. Whether I was born one, I don't know. What difference does it make? Whether I became one through an abuse of social drinking doesn't really matter. Whatever the cause of my emotional maturity, it doesn't matter. The truth is simple. I am a priest alcoholic, but I am one of the fortunate ones who found this tremendous fellowship to take drink out of my life. It certainly wasn't God's fault that I became an alcoholic, although I would like to thank God, really would like to thank God for permitting me to go through this period of alcoholism because it led me to something as wonderful as this fellowship. It wasn't anybody else's fault that led me to alcoholic drinking as much as I like to blame everybody else especially some of those guys I had for pastors. It wasn't the fault of any problems in my life. Every single serious problem in my life was the result of my drinking and not the cause of it. I was the one at fault. I loved liquor. You know, I loved what it did to me. It warmed up my stomach and gave me a glow, a wonderful feeling. It made me so comfortable with people. And then when the same enticing fluid began to cause me serious problems, and when I tried to stop, I couldn't. I didn't know how. I used a lot of means to try to stop drinking. I told you I wanted to be a good priest. I got up at night at times, knelt down next to my bed for an hour, praying that I wouldn't drink too much the next day. I prayed before that first drink, asking God, God, don't let me take any more than this first one. I even made a retreat in 1954 at Gethsemane, Kentucky, at the Trappist Monastery. And you know, this was going to be it for me. I wasn't going to drink after that at all. On my way back to Flint, Michigan, I got as far as Cincinnati, about 120 miles away. I had dinner with three couples, and the waitress was standing to my left, she began to take orders, Manhattan, Martini, and whatever it was, and I began to sweat bullets. What am I going to say when she gets to me? Well, I was tough. I hung in there. When she got to me, Father, what are you going to have? I don't care for anything, thank you. One of the babes across, one of the ladies across the table... <laughs> said very simply, well, 
Father, if you're not going to drink, we won't either. Give me a double scotch, please. Why? Doesn't this show, you know, the emotional immaturity? I tell the story for only one reason. The deeply rooted ego problem that I have that can cause me to drink at any time unless I hang on to this beautiful fellowship. As a result of taking that double scotch, I spent the next year, of course, on that same old merry-go-round. The mistake I was making, it's obvious, I think it's a mistake many alcoholics make. I did not want to drink to excess. I didn't want to drink too much. I always had the notion, you know, with all my education, brilliant, you know, and with my physical stamina, why I ought to be able to take uh, four or five good jolts and let it go at that. Of course, you know the answer I simply couldn't. For a long time, even before getting into AA, for a long time, I began to have a hazy notion. Well, you know, if you stay away from that first drink, your problems are going to cease or you're going to be able to handle them all right. But I just couldn't stay away from that first drink. And even before I got into AA, I never would have been able to stay away from that first drink very long for the simple reason that in my wildest dreams I never would have known that pride which manifests itself in resentments, in jealousies, in self-pity, all of these things must be watched. Otherwise, we will invariably take that first drink. A.A taught me that. You know, at many meetings we attend, you hear people say, I found a new way of life. I have to, in all truth, say more than that. I found life itself. I didn't know what living was before I got into AA. I was existing, but there's a great deal of difference between existence and living. Existence is such a negative thing. But living is, is, is dynamic. It's such a positive thing. Happiness. I don't like to get sentimental. But I think that happiness must be like the beginning of heaven itself. There were many, many material blessings that came as a result of not drinking. Waking up in the morning, not at four o'clock two hours before the alarm rang or supposed to ring and with the butterflies and the bats in your stomach not having to run to the john to vomit or to try to vomit the finger down the throat praying that something will come up those famous dry heaves oh what misery being able to walk down the steps in the morning and I knew my foot was on that step what a great feeling. And offering Mass as a Catholic priest, offering Mass without feelings of guilt, remorse. How often, maybe in a cold day, the church, real cold at 6 o'clock in the morning, everybody bundled up. Here was the priest, Father Bill, up on the altar, sweating. I admit these are only material blessings, but oh, they're tremendous. Being able to eat breakfast, really enjoy ham and eggs. What a treat this was. And the climax of all of this came when my boss, my superior, said, Bill, I'm going to send you out to the West Coast as a missionary. Oh, brother, big shot stuff again. Not drinking, of course, but still the old big shot. And I reminded him, I said, well, Father, you know there's a little bit of danger there. If I take that first drink, we can, we can blow our whole project out there. He said this, Bill, as long as you keep on going to AA, I'm not a bit worried about you. But the most priceless treasure, by far the most priceless treasure, is peace of mind. I know all of you alcoholics out here know exactly what I mean when I say peace of mind. And yet, I think it takes another alcoholic priest 
to know exactly what I mean when I say that I'm glad I am an alcoholic. And I am, because I just can't envision myself being as happy as I am now, were it not for this fellowship. And if I were not an alcoholic, I would not have this fellowship. I have problems now. Many of my cons think, oh, you have smooth sailing. You're no longer boozing, no problems. Certainly I have problems. Many of the same problems that plagued me when I was drinking are still with me. But AA, you have taught me how to handle them, not to run away from them, but to face them, to ask God to help me to accept the things I cannot change, have a little bit of courage and guts to change the things I can, and above all, the wisdom to know the difference. You know, it's, it's astonishing to me, but there are times now that I even find myself trying to be cheerful when my feelings are hurt. I, I find myself trying to use a little bit of common sense in accepting people the way they are, not the way I would like them to be. I find myself being more agreeable with people who differ with me. You know, when I was drinking, anyone who didn't agree with me was automatically a disagreeable person. But I think far and beyond all, there are some vague attempts in my life now to be unselfish. Sometimes I try to comfort rather than seek to be comforted. I think you have a glimmer by this time of my tremendous gratitude to Alcoholics Anonymous, to this wonderful fellowship. Because dear Mrs. X, wherever she is, did so much for me. And since there is a gentleman in this room tonight who called AA today for help, since this is his very first meeting, I'd like to make some suggestions. They're not directed entirely to him. They're directed to anybody who might be having a tough time with the program. We're all beginners as far as that is concerned. We're beginners until we're, or at least I will be, till I'm dead about five or six days. But <laughs> these are just a few brief thoughts that helped me so very much in the beginning when I was having a tough time, and they're still helping me today. I think it was at least according to tradition. They say that Father or Dr. Bob, we're making a Catholic priest, I don't be careful now. <laughs> Dr. Bob, shortly before he died, said, keep the program simple. I can think of no more simple way than that dear Mrs. X told me. Don't take that first drink. Don't let the program become complicated. I just made this a part of me. In all of my thinking, it was always somehow or other, no matter what problem you have, no matter what difficulty it is, no matter how catastrophic something might be in your life, everything will come out all right as long as you don't take that first drink. And it has. Then AA taught me the approach to not taking that first drink. You know, I used to tell God, I'm not going to take that first drink today. I'm not going to be a darn fool and mess up my life by taking that first drink today. And all the time, I was being just that darn fool. AA taught me, no, you're a pushover as far as booze is concerned. You have no willpower as far as drink is concerned. Ask God. Dear God, don't let me take that first drink today. And it has worked for 17 years and 8 months. 
The second suggestion I would have is don't miss meetings. If I miss meetings, I'll be a dead duck. I think of meetings something like, you know, we give electric shock treatment to help people to forget. I think of meetings as electric shock therapy to help us to remember. To help us to remember that I am an alcoholic and I always will be an alcoholic. And the day I forget it is the day I'm in danger of taking that first drink. And when I go stop going to meetings, then there is the danger that I'm going to forget the absolute importance of meetings. My time is about up, but I'd just like to say a few words about the third step. Giving of our lives and our wills over to the care of God as we understand Him. Sobriety without happiness, as far as I'm concerned, is for the birds. I've seen so many people sober, but dear God, I'd rather see them drunk. But in order to have this happiness, we've got to work for it, don't we? And I think the very core of our program is this giving of ourselves to God as you understand Him. I understand Him as a loving God. Anyone that would take drink out of my life as he did, he surely must love this stupid priest. So I know he's a loving God. Now, I, there's, this isn't in the Bible, I know it isn't, but I guess we can fantasize a little. We used to fantasize when we were drinking. I, you know, I, even after I stopped drinking, I caught myself one time thinking, there's a possibility the Pope might make me a bishop to work with alcoholic priests. So let me fantasize for a moment. God the Father and Son are looking out over the world. This is maybe a few thousand years after creation. The Father says to the Son, look at the mess. We put these people on earth to be happy. We gave them an intellect and a will to know, to love. We gave them some instincts that are so necessary. Ah, oh, but how they're following their lives up. They're not using their intellect will. They're letting these instincts run away with them. And the son says to his father, Father, I know what we can do. I'll go down on earth and I'll show them how to use their intellect and will and instincts. Father, I'll become one of them and show them how to live. And father says to his son, Son, do you know what they'll do to you if you become one of them? They won't even give you a decent place in which to be born. You'll be born in a stable. And the day will come when they'll mock you and spit at you, hang you on a cross. That's all the thanks you'll get if you become one of them. The son says, But Father, I love them so much. I don't care what they do to me. Nine years ago, Chuck C. modernized the parable of the prodigal son. It was tremendously moving. Since then, I have thought about it often, and I see the real hero of that story not as the prodigal son that I am, coming running back to the father, but rather the real hero is the loving father who's waiting for his son to come back. And you know, he's watching for him every day. That son had fallen so low he ended up sleeping with pigs and eating their swill. One day the father sees him coming in the distance. And instead of waiting there and ready to say, I told you so, he runs out to meet him and as smelly as he must have been from those pigs, it didn't make one bit of difference. His father threw his arms around him, he hugged him, and he kissed him. All he cared about was that his son had come home.
the God that I believe in. That's the God that I am trying to hand my will and my life over to. Trying to see His will working in everything in my life. Whether it's a headache, whether it's the pain of arthritis, whether it's the loss of a loved one in an accident, no matter what it might be, somehow or other, God permitting it. I think life can be compared, and you as well as I can compare it, to God and me working on a piece of tapestry. God pushes the needle down. All I have to do is push that needle back up. And so we weave one day at a time, just God and I. Now God sees the pattern he's forming of my life. I can't. I'm underneath. All I see is a confusion of threads. But God sees it. And someday I'm going to see it too. And then I know I'll be forced to say, God has done all things well. What the future holds for me, if there is much of a future, I don't know. But I'm not going to worry about it. That's in God's hands. All I know is I have today. And all I know is that I'm going to ask God one day at a time not to let me take that first drink and to help me to make some spiritual progress. Those two things for me are absolutely essential. It's not important that I learn one single bit more about alcoholism, but it is terribly important that I learn more about God and that I learn more about me. The more I learn about me, the more I know how weak, how frail I am. The more I know about God, the more I know His power and His love. His power overcomes my weaknesses. With that combination, how can I possibly miss Thank you very much, and God bless all of you.